What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. And Washington with the hill. Blake. You know, Connell, before we go, I'm glad you mentioned the Jets being the worst football game you've ever <laughs> oh. seen. You've got your, your Jets green tie on today. You must be hopeful for this weekend. Yeah, you know what? Uh, uh, the best part about that game, as bad as it was, it, will, it was a win for the Jets somehow. So a <laughs> there win you go. is That's a win. That's all that matters, brother. Yep. Have yep. a good one. All right. Have a good weekend. Uh, yeah, we'll catch you on Monday. All right. Hello and welcome to The Hill here on News Nation. There are significant developments in Israel this evening. 28 days into the war. The Secretary of State and the Israeli Prime Minister saying two totally different things today. Here in Washington, Democrats now expressing concerns with how our ally is conducting the war. Plus, the new Speaker of the House wrapping up his first week on the, on the job, the first full week at least. The Senate is about to shred his first bill while questions popped up about his own bank account. Mike Johnson in focus on this Friday. And why are we turning our clocks back this weekend? And why hasn't Washington done anything about it? The Hill on News Nation starts right now. Thanks for being with us. I'm Blake Berman, joined today by Chris Steyerwall, News Nation political editor and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Scott Bolden is the former D.C. Democratic Party chairman. Kerry Sheffield is a Republican strategist. And Hogan Gidley is the former Trump White House deputy press secretary. By the way, hanging out with us as well, Mick Mulvaney, News Nation political and economic contributor, former White House chief of staff in the Trump administration. Hello to you all. Let's start the Hill. All right, welcome on in. Happy Friday. So it has been, of course, 28 days now, and there are questions tonight about what might come next. Just consider what we've seen in the last handful of hours in the Middle East. Israel has targeted an ambulance, and it says for good reason, because it took out Hamas terrorists using that vehicle. The Secretary of State and Israel's Prime Minister saying two different things today about the pace of the war. And the head of Hezbollah speaking for the first time today since all of this broke out, since the terrorist attack on October 7th, saying, quote, we have entered the battle. And he says all options are on the table. Chris, that is the backdrop now on day 28 of this war. You know, we've talked from the outset here about the clock that Israel is is working under, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and I think anybody would say that the support and response from the Biden administration has exceeded what original expectations might have been, right? Republicans were prepared to say, well, this administration is not going to stand with Israel. And yet, to a pretty impressive degree, uh, they have at some political cost. Uh, but in the world, uh, in world politics and in domestic politics within the Democratic Party, mm -hmm. uh, the, the tolerance for how long Israel can go uh, before there's a serious uh, backlash, we don't know. That's why this moment is so crucial and so essential for them. Uh, if they want to succeed, they got to do it fast. All right. So out to Tel Aviv right now, News Nation national correspondent Robert Sherman uh, is there for us once again. Robert, it feels like a lot really uh, started to take shape, not take shape, but I guess just happened here uh, throughout the day. Yeah, a lot of developments here today, Blake, and especially when it comes to that ambulance. A lot of chatter online, a lot of gruesome photos and videos on social media. But sticking to what we know here, the IDF contending that they hit this ambulance, they confirmed this fact, saying that there were Hamas terrorists inside of that ambulance. 
Hamas hitting back on all this, saying that this was in front of Al Shifa Hospital and that ambulance convoy was supposed to take injured people down south. The IDF offering a little bit more color on all of this. Their spokesperson putting this online saying, quote, Hamas has a long record of abusing ambulances in Gaza to move combatants, commanders and weapons. By doing so, they are violating international law. When we perceive an immediate threat, we are well within our rights to strike. This all comes on the same day that Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, was supposed to give a highly anticipated speech. Everybody here was worried about what he might say. What he said raised a few eyebrows. He said that October 7th attack was, quote unquote, 100 percent Palestinian, and they knew nothing about it. But he backed that up by saying that he defended the move. The other interesting thing that he said was they're prepared to do a bit more when it comes to the war. We've seen those firefights taking place at the northern border every day. He says U.S. warships do not scare him. But what he did not say was that Hezbollah was ready to go all in. And that is what Hamas sympathizers were hoping he would have said. Blake. Robert Sherman, live for us in Tel Aviv once again. Robert, thank you. Stay safe over the weekend. Uh, the growing death toll in Gaza now is calling, causing rather a divide in the Democratic Party. For example, a group of 14 Senate Democrats now questioning how Israel is conducting its own war. Senator Chris Murphy, for example, saying in a statement, quote, it's time for Israel's friends to recognize that the current approach is causing an unacceptable level of civilian harm and does not appear likely to achieve the goal of ending the threat from Hamas. I urge Israel to immediately reconsider its approach. Mick Mulvaney, come on in. Hogan Gidley, uh, join here as well. Former Trump administration officials. Did you think that sort of this is where things were heading with the Democratic Party. I mean, you know, Chris talked about the response from the president, but it almost felt like at some point you thought Democrats might go here and, and, and uh, they did. Yeah, I've been saying it from day one. What I expected was some early support. And then I expected as things started to develop and as Israel began to defend itself, as people say they have the quote unquote right to do, and they began to wage this war in the way they wanted to, that the support would begin to wane on the Democrat side. And that's what we're seeing right now. The civilian harm that the senator was talking about there. The civilian harm is because of Hamas. It is their decision, while the Jewish people do everything they can to protect civilians, um, it's Hamas that uses civilians in these instances and puts them in harm's way. So there's a clear difference in ideology here, and it remains to be seen how many of these Democrats kind of siphon off their support for this as the bloodshed continues and as this war expands. And I think it's going to be very telling to see where they stand on this at the end of the day. Wait, but you can't be a willing prisoner of the reality of how Hamas operates. And I don't think the Democrat support of Israel is waning at all. I think what you're hearing from the Senate statement and how many Democrats are feeling is over 10,000 people have been have, have been killed as collateral damage. But when you're going after Hamas leaders and you bomb a, a, a camp, you certainly, you drop six bombs and then the next day drop more bombs, you're going to have a lot of collateral damage. And I think that's what the Democrats are uh, questioning. Isn't, isn't support, isn't Mick, come on, Mick, come on in if you're, if you're here. Isn't support waiting, though? Because yeah. when you look at polls, uh, disapproval of how Israel is handling its response to the October 7th terrorist attack, 49% of Democrats disapprove. That's half. Sure. Uh, well more than independents, well more than Republicans. You know, Starwalt was absolutely right, and so was Hogan. We, we Republicans expected this to happen over the course of the first couple of weeks. 
that Democrat support would certainly wane for this because they have a division in their party. I respectfully disagree with Scott that, 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 that the support is still there. Look, all of the stories coming out of Michigan right now, politically, not talking about the war, talking about politically, is that the war may cost Joe Biden Michigan in the next presidential election. That's a political argument. Look, do people who are, are people who will chop the heads off of babies, are they capable of, of using people as human shields in hospitals? Are they capable of using ambulances to move their, their, uh, their militia around? Absolutely they are. This has been a, a struggle from the very beginning. Uh, you're going to continue to see Democrat support wane for Israel. It's, it's too bad, but we all knew it was going to happen. Well, of course we knew. And because if you look at polling from 2020, the Israelis themselves, it was 70 to 30 said that Donald Trump would be a stronger president than Joe Biden. Only 30 percent of Israelis said that Joe Biden would be a stronger president. I was a journalist in Jerusalem in 2009 when Obama was president to see the way that the Israelis were so disappointed by Democrat Barack Obama. He was the precursor to the failure that is we see from Joe Biden. And the fact is, I would I would edit the headline here when it says that there was a, an ambulance that was hit. It was a military convoy that was hit. It was a military convoy. We just cut out of Halloween. It was co- it was dressing up as an ambulance. It was a, it was a, a military strike. So here, here, here was the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, today when he was in Israel talking about this idea of a temporary pause, a quote-unquote temporary pause to get aid uh, into Gaza. Watch. We provided Israel advice that only the best of friends can offer on how to minimize civilian deaths while still achieving its objectives of finding and finishing Hamas terrorists and their infrastructure of violence. We provided Israel advice that only the best of friends can offer. That's kind of like saying, having said that, you know, and, and then moving into the other direction. That you're being very frank. And uh, Scott's got three on one here, so I'm going to take the side of my friend I here. I would have, but he didn't know to me. He wouldn't. <laughs> Well, I'm going to say. We, we, got, we got Steyerwall here, man. Whenever you, whenever you got Chris. I, I, will, I, will, I will reserve my time back to the gentleman from the District of Columbia. Uh, but, but look, the, there are divisions in, the, in both parties on this matter. Uh, and there, is, there, there are political realities here uh, that the clock will run out. The question, basically, that what, what Blinken's saying, what Biden's saying, is hurry up. Right. Like you've got to get this done. You've got to get to a point Mm -hmm. where you can put this to paid and say that this is what you want to do, because what you're hearing from uh, in Lebanon, what you're hearing from the Iranians is if this goes if this goes on too much longer, we could be in a larger conflagration in the region. This is very difficult statecraft and we can't pretend that it's taking long, though, because they're trying to warn the civilians to get out of harm's way. And Hamas is not allowing them to leave and they're using them as human shields. Had they not been in the region and been gone, this thing would have already been going on. They're trying to do that to protect these kids and these elderly people. I don't disagree with any of that. Why does it have to be one or the other? You just saw uh, the Secretary of State. He wasn't saying he didn't support Israel. He was saying, I support Israel, but I also can't afford to have 15,000 Palestinians killed as collateral damage. You can be both. It doesn't have to be one or the other. All right, let's bring in. Joining us now uh, is the former Israeli special envoy for combating anti-Semitism. She is also the author of Israel, a simple guide to the most misunderstood country on earth, Noah Tishby. Noah, thank you for being here with us on the Hill. Um, you see that letter that, that came forth from, from 14 Senate Democrats basically saying that Israel needs to change its approach. You surprised? 
I don't see, well, I'm not surprised. Sadly, there's a small fringe of the Democratic Party that has been wrong on Israel and on the Middle East consistently. So this is just a continuation of the same approach. Luckily, this is not the majority of, of uh, Democrats. We got Steny Hoyer and we got Richie Torres and we have a lot of Democrats that are on the right side of history. I disagree with this letter vehemently because if America or any other normal country in the world would have gone through what Israel have gone through on October 7th and continues to go through, nobody would have asked them to be proportional or to slow down or any of that. Right. One of the things that people don't understand is that the attack didn't happen and end on October 7th. There are terrorists that are trying to infiltrate Israel every single day. There are rockets coming from the, from the north, rockets from the Houthis in Yemen coming from the south. Israel is still under attack. And for Nasrallah to say today that this has nothing to do with Iran and basically sacrifice Hamas and the Sunnis, which they hate even more than the Jews, is really, it's ridiculous. Nobody actually thinks that Iran was not involved in this. Iran sponsors Hamas. Iran sponsors right. Hezbollah. Iran was the one who trained them to do this. And Iran so, is the one that is doing mastermind behind the whole thing. So on this idea of a quote-unquote humanitarian pause, um, that's... In essentially what the Biden administration... Yeah, no, it, it, it's what the Biden I, administration is calling for. Israel saying we are going a full, a full, full throttle with this war. I spoke to the ambassador, Michael Herzog, earlier, today, or earlier this week, and he said to me, I have no idea what a humanitarian pause is. Is that semantics for ceasefire? Hamas is welcome to take the 500,000, half a million liters of gasoline that they're holding underneath the Shifa hospital in Gaza. They're welcome to take that and give it to the people. That's what There was an intercepted call between Hamas leaders. They were actually talking about that particular um, storage of gasoline. We know that they take it away from their people. This needs to end. This absolutely needs to end. There will be ceasefire, absolutely, as soon as Hamas is defeated. That's what needs to happen. You have to understand... Iran and Hamas have sadly sacrificed Gaza. They basically right. put all their chips in. They knew exactly what was going to happen. They not only don't care. There's a fatwa that says that you can kill babies and you can kill mothers and you can kill your own citizens and civilians for the defense of their ideology. That ideology needs to stop. It's horrific. It's heartbreaking for all of us. But it needs on, to happen. On the, on the, as it relates to anti-Semitism. And the widespread rise, Noah, of anti-Semitism that we are seeing in this country. I wonder what you make of uh, what some of the biggest law firms in this country said this week. Uh, article in the Wall Street Journal. A warning to the law schools on anti-Semitism. Major law firms tell deans to protect students and resist anti-Semitism. Is it going to take the private sector uh, doing things like this, warning college campuses, uh, we've seen Bill Ackman, for example, with what's going on with Harvard. Put your name to it so we know we don't so we know who not to hire. Is that what it is going to take to curb uh, anti the anti-Semitic rise that we see in this country right now? I want to make sure that the resistance that is coming up uh, against anti-Semitism is not being considered a cabal waking up. Okay, because that's not what it is. We are all about equal opportunities. If you are a person that was speaking up against gays or um, anybody from any minority or blacks or Asians, you would have gotten fires. There would have been repercussions. And Jews just didn't count. So I absolutely think that the private sector, the public sector, private citizens and everybody needs to speak up because, you know, it's not a public, it's not a... Um, popular opinion right now. But you know when else it was not popular? In Germany in 1932. And if you're not speaking up right now, what the hell are you doing? Noah Tishby, got to live it there. Uh, we appreciate the time. Thank you for coming on and, and joining us. Thank Thanks, you. Noah.
Yep. All right. Well, the future of U.S. aid to Israel still remains a bit uncertain tonight, even though the new House Speaker Mike Johnson got one of his first major legislative wins. Really, the, the first one. It was the, the first bill, after all. <laughs> uh, he passed emergency aid to Israel yesterday, passing the House. Twelve Democrats joined nearly every House Republican in passing the package that cuts IRS spending to pay for the $14 billion in aid. But the Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has a message for Republicans. The Senate will not be considering this deeply flawed proposal from the House GOP. And instead, we will work together on our own bipartisan emergency aid package that includes aid to Israel, Ukraine, competition with the Chinese government, and humanitarian aid for Gaza, so much needed. All right, Mick, so uh, the, How- or the Senate says this is a no-go, uh, Mike Johnson's first legislative bill. Does it highlight his inexperience in leadership, or does it highlight really conservatives uh, taking a stand here, and Mike Johnson taking a stand here on runaway spending? I think it's the latter. I think it's also not uh, not only a comment against runaway spending. That's why you're seeing the, Repub- the Republican bill out of the House that I guess it's the bipartisan bill out of the House pay for the Israeli aid by taking money away from the IRS. Um, it's not only that, but it's also this idea of separating out different topics. Why? Why does aid to Israel have to be tied to aid to Ukraine? Why does aid to Israel have to be tied to aid to Taiwan? Why does aid to Israel have to be tied to the southern border? You would think that there'd be enough support for Israel by itself. A lot of Republicans and some Democrats don't like voting on those massive bills. And that would be the first question you ask Schumer, which is, okay, we, we understand why, you're, why you don't like this, but why don't you like it? I don't think you're going to get that answer. Um, Got to run, but you, real quick, you happy with the first week here for Mike Johnson? I think he, he moved the needle, and I think it was good. I think he planted a flag. I think he showed some leadership. And look, for, for all the Democrats who are anti-Israel right now, I want to ask them, if you support democracy, Israel is the only oh, democracy right. in a sea of autocracy. You're talking 9,000 square miles surrounded by 5 million Arab square miles. It's support n- democracy. You don't have to have it combined. Here. Mike, Mike, good, jo- Mike Johnson, good, good first week good for him policy, here? Or? Good politics. This is a smart move, and it puts the Democrats over a barrel. It's going to be a problem for them. All right. And then the question. Uh, no, <laughs> not really. Let him, let him talk. Let no, him go, talk. Scott. Go, go, Scott. Go. go. Scott, go. <laughs> really. uh, Mick, let me newsflash. Right. The reason they have to be linked and should be linked is because Russia is getting oil from Iran. Iran is financing Hamas and Hezbollah. They're one in the same, quite frankly. And we can afford to support our Iran friends. Has made more and money. I, if, I, if I may, we can we can afford to do this because we have to do it because both are vital to our to our interests. Iran is flush with Mick. cash when Democrats are leaving. The White House. And it's Russian money supporting them because we've cut off their oil. Russia's they on the move linked. when a Democrat's in the White House. We could so do this all day. We sure can. We got 42 more minutes, though. Uh, we got 42 more minutes to talk about this. Uh, by the way, there have been headlines this week about the new speaker's wealth. Speaking of Mike Johnson, are really questions about lack thereof. Consider this question Should we start paying lawmakers more money? Uh, Mick will explain why he feels that answer is a no-brainer. Mick Mick thinks this is a no-brainer. We're going to get into this with Mick. Uh, I mentioned the 42 minutes. And now, by the way, uh, we have a a new look at the latest generational divide. How aging is sending boomers one way politically, while their grandkids are experiencing a much different trend. Steyerwald breaks it down when the Hill on News Nation returns.
Blanc. All right, welcome back here to The Hill on News Nation. 73 days away from the Iowa caucuses. But as we look ahead to the 2024 election, one factor that will shape the results clearly is the political leanings of different generations. Here to break it down, Chris Steyerwald. Chris, break it down for us. Uh, so you want to know why we can't have nice things. That's basically what everybody <laughs> wants to know. Why is our politics broken? Why are people so mean? Why can't we accomplish the things that a majority of Americans seem to want? And today we can tell you. We can tell you because of the great work of the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago uh, that the Wall Street Journal highlighted. And I just want to, I want you to understand this is an explainer more than anything. So first, let's get the stakes. Uh, here's the breakdown of the electorate in 2020. 44% were members of the silent generation or baby boomers. 31% were members of uh, millennial generation or Gen Z. These are like two big uh, rabbits moving through a python. We have these two big demographic lumps that account for the overwhelming majority of who is in the American electorate. So basically, it's kids and their parents, and they're fighting. They're fighting like kids and their parents typically do. Uh, and the conflict is where we see the problem. So let's bring up the movement of baby boomers in their political life, in their political lifetimes, how they have changed so much. Okay, those two snakes represent, you see on the one side there, that's the blue line. Those are how Democratic baby boomers are. And on the red line, those are how Republican baby boomers are. So you start out when they're back there, they're, they're still smoking reefer and hanging out. Uh, you've got 23% of them are Republicans in 1976, 52% are Democrats. Look what happens. Look at how much more Republican baby boomers got in the intervening years. You can see they drove their BMWs there right through the 1980s and 1990s as they're watching 30-something, and they get all the way out there, and they're pretty daggone Republican by then, whereas the Democratic number tails off. Okay, now let's look at, of course, the best of all of the generations, Generation X, we, the cream and the Oreo sandwich between these two generations. Here's the Gen X political leanings over time. We're much more consistent, right? So the Gen X people did not, we have not observed the kinds of shifts. You can see an Obama bubble there for a minute. But basically, Gen X has been much more in the middle uh, than baby boomers. You know who's not? In the middle, you know who's not the cream in the Oreo sandwich? You know who's one of those crispy cookies? It's the millennials. So let's look at this last graphic here, which shows how far left. I mean, look at that business. Look at how far the line moves for millennials. So the Republican number is down there at 20%, whereas the, the Democratic number uh, is there at 47%. So what's, what does this mean? What does this mean to you? It means that as the generation of these parents and their kids, essentially, fight it out, they're increasingly in conflict. Younger people are more liberal, more left, more democratic than their parents' generation ever was. And unlike their parents' generation, they're not moving rightward. So as the baby boomers move into, oh, and the last thing we have to remember with all this, you know who votes? Old people. A uh, good rule of thumb is uh, the percentage of people who vote in a given uh, cohort is about equal to the raw number of their age. So which is to say about 60% of 60-year-olds vote, about 50% of 50-year-olds vote, about 40% of 40-year-olds vote. So that gives those now very conservative baby boomers a lot more throw weight when it gets to the polls. This conflict between these generations is the conflict that the country's trapped in, and this is why we cannot have nice things. So as you get ready to go to Thanksgiving dinner table, what you've got to do is shut up. 
Don't argue with these people. Don't argue with the people who disagree <laughs> with you. Love them and stop fighting because we, Gen X, are just asking you all to please, <laughs> please stop. Just enjoy the turkey. That's terrible. Breaking it down. <laughs> um, whenever I have a similar thought as you, I feel really smart. <laughs> and I thought I was going to say to you, so don't talk politics at Thanksgiving, yeah, huh? That's the lesson. Up. Just to try shutting up for a second. Well, <laughs> well, now, now they're now now taking gummies. gummies. Now yeah, now it's legal. Do whatever you want. Not edgy anymore. Now the Trump-loving auntie <laughs> will be have her gum, her Cheech and Chong gummies. <laughs> and then she can hit her grandson's vape pen and they can argue in an altered state. It'll be great. This went uh, So, back to politics. Um, here's, here's what I found interesting. One of the things I, many things I found interesting. Political leanings by generation. Baby boomers are plus eight Democratic. Gen X, plus four Democratic. Millennials, plus 27 Democratic. You would look at that and say, well, then how do Republicans win elections? Well, look, there's a Trump factor in here as well. Uh, the arrival of Donald Trump, and he is so well-liked by older Americans and so hated by younger Americans, there is some distortion in here that if and when Donald Trump leaves the political scene, will those younger voters come back in? Or will they be available? What Democrats are hoping is that the trend stays, that the, the, the movement to the left for younger Americans becomes a permanent thing and that Republicans will always be starting from a lower baseline. But the unquestionable truth here is this. When the baby boom generation shuffles off this mortal coil, when, when we, ha we are at the edge of a demographic cliff in the country, mm -hmm. if the Republican Party can't do better with younger voters, especially mm -hmm. women, that's just that's not going to work. So that, that points to uh, over the horizon what Republicans have to address. Well, I work for the largest conservative women's group, and I will say I think there's also a lot of uh, when you ask someone their political leanings versus their actual policy the policies are far more popular, the conservative policies. Economically, the vast majority of millennials want to start their own business. Something like two-thirds of them want to start their business. Very entrepreneurial. Conservatism is the party of entrepreneurialism. It is the party of uh, you know, being a free, mar uh, free market, free-oriented person. The party of dependency and decrepitism, that's the Democratic Party. The Democratic wants to keep you it wants to keep you like in the chains of government. It wants to keep you dependent on government. So No, you're not. I'm just saying because you're you're a reasonable Democrat. I'm talking about the Marxist one. You're not a Marxist. All Democrats are reasonable, they just have a political view. But I do have one quick question. Is this Generally, my father, when he was on this earth, would say the older you get, no matter how liberal you may be, you get conservative because you get a mortgage, you yes. pay taxes, you got kids, and you got to pay for a lot more the older you get. How does that play into the graphics that you just shared? Uh, uh, and just very quickly, part of the problem that Republicans face is that the age of first marriage and the age of first uh, having children first mm -hmm. has gotten older and older and yep. older, yep. which means that the very phenomenon that your dad was talking about, right, mm -hmm. that that yep. thing yep. has been delayed. I was going to ask Mulvaney what the family Thanksgiving was like, but we got it wrong. <laughs> Coming up, the presidential race and foot fetishes. Whoa. Okay, here we are. Hey. How Ron DeSantis is firing back against Donald Donald Trump, and haven't we seen this kind of thing before? That's coming up when The Hill returns. Did not have that. This is no time for foot fetishes. We've got serious problems as a country. I know uh, Donald Trump and a lot of his people have been focusing um, on things like footwear. I'll tell you this. 
Um, you know, if Donald Trump can summon the balls to show up to the debate, I'll wear a boot on my head. Okay, Uh, so that was the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, last night, uh, both responding to Trump world, criticizing his boots, while also issuing a colorful challenge to the former president, Donald Trump. Now, DeSantis's campaign now even selling a pair of golf balls Uh, on its website. But haven't we seen something like this before? He's always calling me Little Marco. And I'm a guy he's taller than me, he's like 6'2", which is why I don't understand why his hands are the size of someone who's 5'2". Have you seen his hands? They're like this. And you know what they say about men with small hands? That, of course, Marco Rubio, Hogan at the end of uh, February of 2016. He was fighting for his political life. He went to the stuff like that. And, and you see Ron DeSantis doing it. Granted, he was asked about it last night, but you see him doing it. He engaged. And you got to wonder if it's kind of like a Marco moment. Yeah. This is so out of the realm <laughs> of what we should be discussing right now. I understand, though, this is the type of politics we have to engage in sometimes along the way, because at the end of the day, the boots gate or whatever we're going to call it, Marco's stuff with the hands, et cetera, et cetera. It's funny for the little entrenched encampments to say, ah, look at us. But it's all about the policy here. I hate to be sound like a wonk and I'm a press person. <laughs> for sakes. But you got to start focusing on the things that matter to the American people. And him trying to get Donald Trump to a debate when Donald Trump's up 40 points by okay. saying things like this, I don't think it's helpful. Marco Moment, Kerry? Uh, I mean, it's not a good look. And, and I, DeSantis had a lot of promise. I mean, he had his zenith around like March, April, where there was momentum where he could have overtaken Trump. But I think, unfortunately, he tried to mimic Trump. He tried to out-Trump Trump. There's no doing that. He should have been more core to who he was, which I think is actually more of a wonk. I, I went to a speech he gave last fall, in last September. He was Mr. Wonk, and the crowd was just, mm. he was eating out of his hand. And, and then seeing him flash forward to trying to out-Trump Trump on the culture war stuff, I think that's why he lost, because both the more moderate parts of the, the, the party were, were alienated from him, and then the MAGA base said, no, you're, you're cheap imitation. So there was nobody for him in yeah. his lane. It's the Bill Maher line of, why would you go see the tribute band? I mean, right. the, yeah. the, 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 why would I go pay money to see the rambling rocks when the Rolling Stones are right down the street? It doesn't right. make any sense. Okay. All right. Well, as we talk about Ron DeSantis and... Bootgate. Uh, Here's perhaps another question. What matters when it comes to candidate quality? Well, shortly after the election of the House Speaker Mike Johnson, the Wall Street Journal ran an article the the following saying, uh, Speaker Choice puts GOP majority at risk. Mick, though, disagrees. In a new op-ed in The Hill, he wrote the following saying, Candidate quality, not the Speaker, will decide who controls the House. Mick, come on back. Why do you say this? Yeah, because I ran in a swing district. I know that sounds strange to people to hear that because I'm from South Carolina, but I was the first Republican in 120 years in my (laughs) district, so I had to talk to swing voters, and not a single one of them cared about John Boehner, who at the time was the majority leader. They want to talk about health care. They want to talk deficits. They want to talk about the debt. That Washington media wants to make a big deal about who the speaker is, and every now and then... Every now and then, you know, maybe the speaker moves a vote or two. Maybe somebody doesn't, you know, votes for me because they don't like Nancy Pelosi. But that's not how swing districts get won or lost. This is another one of those tempest in a teapot. Mike Johnson's could be judged as a speaker based upon how he performs as speaker. 
And Republicans are going to win or lose in swing districts depending upon the candidates they put on the ground. He is not going to be the cause of their success or the cause of any, any, any loss that they have in 2024. Hey, hey Mick, it's Hogan. Here, here's a question, though. You brought up a name I think is very important. As you know, we use this to our advantage for a long time, Nancy Pelosi. Te- tethering a president to Nancy Pelosi, tethering an issue to a speaker like uh, Pelosi, who was so polarizing for our side. You don't think, do you think it only matters on the margins or you don't think anyone in the middle pays attention to that at all? Or the, uh, I guess the campaigns to kind of show the extreme nature of whoever the speaker may be. Yeah, Hogan, you and, I, you and I both know how the numbers work. On the day of my election in 2010, my name ID was 98% in my district. Six weeks later, it was 40%. Do you think any of those people knew who the Speaker of the House was? I mean, ask folks right now around the nation, who is the Speaker of the House? And no one's going to know. And more importantly, nobody's going to care. Swing <laughs> voters are swing voters for a reason. Undecided voters yeah. are undecided for a reason, which they don't follow this like we do. You want to tell Mulvaney he's right? Uh, he's right that the, <laughs> certainly he's right that the most important consideration will be candidate in terms of what you can control. Right, uh, candidate quality is the most important thing. But I will say this: Republicans may have bought a pig in a poke here. Uh, they picked a guy who they thought was very neutral that people hadn't heard of. He had a low profile. Democrats are working really, really hard right now to make Mike Johnson very, very famous for creationism and anti-gay rhetoric and all kinds of stuff. And they're going to get they're going to squeeze every vote that they can out of that. And Republicans, I think, to Hogan's point, Republicans have succeeded, succeeded I th- with Nancy I think Pelosi. The difference is I think. Pelosi's been around a lot longer. Yeah, yeah, no, so no, no, she no, has no, way more name ID than Mike Mick, Johnson. Mick. That, and I agree. Most people don't know. I was on a date once in 2018 with the guy. He didn't know who the Speaker of the House was, that, Bill Ryan at the time. And I was like, that's okay. the end of that. Sorry. I think it works for the Democrats, too, though. What, what, what Mick is saying, the quality of the candidates, I'm not sure the average voter even knows or cares who the speaker is. And I know the Republicans yeah. tried to yeah. hang Nancy Pelosi. But, but I think in the end, all politics is local politics and the local candidates and knowing the issues matter. Interesting read, Mick. Uh, and if you haven't seen it uh, in the Hill, Mick's article on this very issue. All right, coming up. He was found guilty of defrauding customers and investors of billions of dollars. But Sam Bankman-Fried was also one of the biggest donors in D.C. How much he threw around town. And as we follow the money, what should be done about our lawmakers' paychecks? There have been some headlines this week. Have you seen them about Mike Johnson's finances? Mick here also has some thoughts on what we should be paying lawmakers. We'll get into it when The Hill on News Nation returns. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. All right, welcome back to The Hill. So we are just starting to see some of the fallout here from the conviction of the former crypto king and FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried. He's found guilty on all seven counts in his New York fraud trial this week. So now let's follow the money here for a second. Bankman-Fried and his fellow executives at FTX were prolific donors, with a recent investigation from Coindesk finding that almost 200 members of Congress had received contributions from them. 
That's before you even look at uh, donations to political action committees, which were considerable as well. In all, it's believed he donated almost $200 million to PACs that supported both parties, though overwhelmingly leaned Democrat. So now that the case is over, Scott, are these lawmakers going to give the money back? Do they have to give the money back? I mean, I would think in some sort of clawback. They might be liable here, or no? I don't. No, I don't know. No, 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 no. Boy, you are you're stretching. You're stretching it. Yeah. But you're not going to get that answer from me. The reality is, there's no law that will require them to give the money back. Most elected officials would give the money back if they took money from an associate, someone who just got convicted in a criminal. But let Most? me tell you where the well, sure. <laughs> okay. uh, wishful thinking. But let me tell you what you're thinking about. That is, as part of this indictment, there's what we call forfeiture and restitution. And now that he's been indicted, mm-hmm. there are multi-million, if not a billion-dollar forfeiture and restitution proceedings that are, they're going to have a separate proceeding for. Hmm. And that's when the clawback comes. But the clawback is going to come from the defendants, hmm. not necessarily from the money he gave away. Now, politically, if you got money from one of those entities, then you probably ought to give back because politically or from your campaign, right. your opponent may raise it. But there's no technical law huh. that requires them so to give that money So here's the back. question I have about that, then. How do you have restitution? for somebody in a primary who lost because of the million. So my friend Clay Aiken, the singer, had a really great name ID in his home district in North Carolina where he was running near Raleigh. Sam Bankman-Free comes in and pumps millions and millions and millions of dollars behind his opponent, Val Demings, in the primary. Mm -hmm. Clay Aiken was winning. After that, he lost the primary. And so where's, where's Clay Aiken's restitution, Scott? Well, he's not a defendant. Well, you, you can't say it rest- caused it. Like, I mean, like okay. uh, there's not a straight line I'm, there. I'm, 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 I'm for your friendship. With <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, as a political analyst, I would say Val Demings was probably a stronger candidate. But she, she <laughs> and was, I said no, uh, no offense to Clay. Aiken. No, but but she was she she was uh, doing fewer events. She had uh, less name ID. Um, she was uh, she was someone who was I think. Um, less it, on the issue of, of if you could crypto. buy an election, it would have been done by now. If you could, if, you, if Jeb, yeah, Jeb Bush okay. and Hillary but the Clinton, gone. But we're talking okay. about on the, the issue, money's gone. On speaking, the issue of crypto. Speaking, speaking of money, by the way, um, at the end of his first week as Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson now facing an unusual amount of focus on his finances. The Daily Beast had this headline, for example: Does new Speaker of the House Mike Johnson have a bank account? That article claiming that he has never listed a bank account on his disclosures and it's hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, potentially, they say. Now, uh, what this makes me think of is this. If the Speaker of the House is facing these kind of financial hardships, does Congress deserve a raise? They currently make $174,000. It's been unchanged since 2009. Mulvaney's smiling because I just teed him up. Uh, Mick, you, you think this is something that's a long time coming. Yeah, I don't hear Starlight rolling because he's, he's, he's sick and tired of agreeing with me, so we've got to find something we can disagree on. Look, tell me somebody who hasn't gotten a raise in 15 years. Um, these folks sh- adjusted for inflation, that 174 should be roughly $250,000. There's 150 members of Congress, at least up until this Congress when they changed the rules, that live in their office. I did it for six years. Why? Because that's not enough money to maintain a residence in Washington, D.C., and back in the districts. And voters expect us to be back in the district on the weekend and in Washington to work during the week. If you don't pay them for the work, what's going to happen is only folks who don't need the money are going to run for office. So what, so, so what should the... We're state, 
State lawmakers, by the way, in this state haven't gotten raised since the 1980s, and the job pays about $8,000 a year. So what you get is folks who don't need the money or folks for whom $8,000 a year is the best they're ever going to do, and that leads to bad government. <laughs> Mick, what about this? What about a pay for performance? Because I honestly think that Congress should get a pay cut because they're not competent. You look at their opinion rating of how people view Congress. They're not doing the work that we actually hired them to do. So what about something where it's pay for performance? Uh, are you more productive? As a, as a legislature, as a body overall, maybe have that. Maybe have some bonuses. If the people actually, if we actually think you're doing a good job, what do you think about that, Nick? Sure. C- keep in mind, most people hate Congress and love their member of Congress. <laughs> the reason that the turnover <laughs> is, is so low. Um, I actually came up with an idea that, that got nowhere, which was to tie it to the, the median household income. Pick a number. Two times household mm-hmm. income, three times. And if, if the country did better, members of Congress got raises. If the, country's, if the country did worse, uh, they got paid less. But look, everybody in the government gets a cost of living. The Social Security represent, uh, recipients get a cost of living adjustment. Federal workers get a cost of living adjustment. Members of Congress are also one of the very few classes of human beings mm. in the country who are not allowed by law to participate in their employer-sponsored health care plan. They have to go huh. on the Obamacare Mick, plan. They're not allowed I'll on the federal agree, plan. So. I'll agree with you on one condition, that it come with term limits. You can have a huge raise for Congress. I'll, I'll give you a huge <laughs> raise for Congress. Like but it has to be, nice it has to be in tandem nice. with... Uh, I, think we just made, I think we just made some policy Well, here. where's Scott? Uh, yeah. we got, we, I'm with Steyerwalt on this, but where's Scott? we gotta get, we got to get bipartisan support for <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, we got to get bipartisan yeah, support. Right, i got to bring in Elizabeth Vargas reports, because uh, Elizabeth Vargas, rather, because she's coming up here in about eight minutes' time. Uh, Elizabeth, hello. I think you're out there somewhere. Uh, tell me what you got. Coming up on the show uh, here in about seven minutes' time. Well, I'm fascinated by the fact that you guys are working up policy on term limits and salary raises. For, uh, uh, starts right here on the hill, you know, or right there. Uh, we're going to weigh in. Uh, we're going to weigh in on the big news uh, out of the Middle East today. That address by the leader of Hezbollah uh, warning the United States to stop Israel from bombing Gaza. And, of course, Netanyahu coming out of his meeting with Blinken saying, nope, we're not going to do that. We're dumbling down. Um, He said, absolutely not full steam ahead. Uh, This comes as the FBI, of course, is warning of more terrorist threats here in the United States. We're going to talk to all of our experts about what the threats are to American soldiers in the Mediterranean, in the Middle East right now, as well as what it means back here at home. All right. We'll see you in about seven minutes. Elizabeth Vargas reports uh, starts at 6 o'clock Eastern, and we'll be right back here on the All right, so if we just made some uh, legislation on lawmaker pay and term limits, how about this? It's daylight savings this weekend, which means in most of the country, we're turning the clocks back an hour on Saturday before you head to sleep. But did you know that some in Congress actually tried to get rid of it? In 2022, led by Senator Marco Rubio, uh, senators tried to scrap daylight savings and keep the time year-round to what it is right now. It went nowhere in the House, so here we are once again. They weren't trying to scrap. They weren't. They weren't trying to scrap it. They were trying to impose it forever. They were trying <laughs> to keep their tyrannical daylight savings, tyrannical, time, goofy tyrannical. business, crushing down on the necks of morning people around the country. And you, you Floridians, have to stop. You have to stop. Florida man. Florida man. You, I know I you're. I know you're, you're out. Uh, you're out doing fan boats across the swamps. Isn't it Arizona though that doesn't do this? Yeah, Arizona. Arizona knows justice and truth right. when it's. They don't. 
don't engage in daylight but that's savings. What they are but the Navajo Nation in Arizona does do it. Uh, Not complicated so it's like a at weird... all. And Indiana's got like 19 times. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. sure. I like it in the fall. I don't like it in the spring. Right. You're, you're a decent person. <laughs> you're a decent, decent person. person. Okay, you know, you know think, right from wrong. It's philosophically the corruption of man. They think they've become God. We cannot control time. Okay. Yeah. All right. Nick, last thoughts? <laughs> We tried this in the Trump White House. Hogan will remember there's there, there's two words that prevent it from happening. Chuck Grassley. Farmers don't right. like oh, There you go. Mick, uh, Mick uh, dropping uh, some knowledge as we go. Uh, Mick, thank uh, you, sir. You Have a great day.